Welcome to Modern Prophets, where we chronicle the riveting stories and hard-won wisdom of individuals with addiction who have found recovery. Hey everybody, how are you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Ryan Keneally, I'm your host. Welcome to the show, to the podcast. It's good to have you here. Today I sit down with John, a 29-year-old guy who's been in and out of four residential addiction treatment centers, all before the ripe old age of 21. John now has a little over eight and a half years of sobriety. His story highlights the gift that hitting rock bottoms can be, how one goes about piecing their life back together after losing everything, in his case not once but several times and ultimately about how working a 12-step program saved his life and transformed his perspective. I believe that people like John, people with severe addiction who have found recovery, are modern-day prophets that we ignore to our own demise. Addiction doesn't discriminate. It can happen to anyone. And we are all living in a world that primes us for the problem of addiction, a hyper-medicated, overstimulated, pleasure-saturated world. We are neurologically wired to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. John's story illustrates that there is a way out, a community, a better life, freedom from the fear and suffering alone in the darkness. He very powerfully relays his belief that so long as you have a body, you can change and you still have a chance. John is a founder and primary recovery guide at Eric's House Recovery, an all-male sober living home. John spent six years working across the substance use disorder continuum of care at numerous treatment facilities in the Los Angeles area, including Transcend, Authentic Recovery, and Startup Recovery. He's completed his California alcohol and drug counselor coursework, and he uses his profound knowledge to help individuals rebuild themselves, build meaningful foundations in recovery, and ultimately lives they're excited to live. Today, John will share his harrowing story of addiction, as well as the humility, redemption, strength, and wisdom he has gleaned by virtue of his recovery. His is a story of suffering and redemption, and it is my hope that his narrative illuminates and allows us to delve more deeply into the fundamental mystery of our own existence, and that the rest of us, living in a dopamine-saturated world, can look at his experience, relate to it, and learn from it. I, I definitely, there were at each point of being sober and then going back to using, I could have pointed to some traumatic event that led me to get sober again and be like, oh, that was my bottom. Mm-hmm. Some worse than others, but out of all the like awful shit I did to other people, to myself, shit that I did to like sustain my drug use, and there's a lot of really grimy shit in there that like what felt like was my bottom this time was that I was sitting in the car with my mom, driving down to Orange County to go to rehab again. And I'm like coming in and out of consciousness, like nodding out, high on opiates again, looking over at my mom, who's just like weeping again. And I asked her, you know, where we were going. And she said, you're going to rehab again. She said something to the tune of like, honey, I know if I don't help you, you're going to die. But you know what, dude, like my mother's the sweetest woman. She's like, I'm afraid now that even in helping you, you're still just going to die. And hearing that from my mother, who had 
for the past five years, like, gone to pretty extreme lengths to get her son, like, just safe. Mm-hmm. To see her hopeless made me feel awfully hopeless. John tried everything to avoid the inevitability of sobriety. He explored every avenue to no avail until he came to the place of understanding that that is what it's going to take. Before I welcome John, I encourage you to listen to the trailer for the Modern Prophets podcast, where I briefly clarify its purpose, introduce myself, define key terms, and identify some helpful resources. Now, without further ado... John, thank you so much for being here, for granting us privileged access to a painful time in your life. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me, Ryan. John and I initially met through my older sister, Lauren. You helped her detox from Xanax and get into recovery, and she's been sober for over five years now. John, you're family to me. I'm excited to begin this podcast series with you. I think you're the perfect person to have a really important, impactful conversation around the nature of addiction. So let's start with the basics and your background. Mm-hmm. How old are you? Where are you from? Childhood? I'm 29. I'm, uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, raised in Los Angeles, California. Um, let's see. I have one blood brother, two half-siblings that are younger than me. Um, my mom has since moved to Seattle. My dad still lives in LA. And I have one older adopted brother named Toby that lives in Las Vegas. And how was your how was growing up? How was your childhood? Growing up was uh, any any of the insight that I have now is kind of like it continues to develop. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. You know, I, there's a lot of uh, I feel like I get so busy with my life today that I don't I don't always think about like the way I grew up a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, it, it was strange, needless to say. I mean, we, uh, my first um, memories were actually in Woodstock, Vermont. I don't really remember Brooklyn at all because my mom and dad wanted to open a uh, bed and breakfast in Woodstock, Vermont, and they wanted to retire. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom was acting at the time. My dad was a physical therapist, and we moved out there. Um, where they decided to get a divorce and my mom wanted to start acting again. So she moved out to Los Angeles and um, started dating this gentleman named Sam, who was like, even, even, you know, in Brooklyn, I can't remember, but my mom at the time was was successful in her acting. And, and like, I'd even say famous. I mean, it was like the era Mm -hmm. of the soap operas and she was on like all the big ones with like lead roles and stuff like that. But it was nothing that I could see you know, from our farm in Vermont. (laughs) How Um, old were you at this point in time? By the time I got to LA, I was like nine. Okay. Right. And um, I didn't really know what Hollywood was until I got here. Um, I, the only thing I knew about Los Angeles that my mom was telling me was that there were palm trees there and everybody had a (laughs) pool. And I won't forget, like (laughs) this memory has been burned into my head. The plane ride, (laughs) Um, you oh, know, wherever we flew out from New York or, or wherever, we were flying into LA and I could look out the window of the airplane and see all these pools. Like mm-hmm. it really felt like everybody had, had a, a pool. pool. <laughs> um, but we arrived in LA and my mom maybe 
a few years after that got remarried to this this guy and he um owned and operated a, a really really big talent agency and so from like farm to like the glitz and the glam right, that like all of opposite. la has to offer i was like pretty overwhelmed <laughs> you know i was like i i didn't understand what was going on it felt like everybody was quite a bit even the kids my age like quite a bit smarter than me like more charming i mean i i was i was literally coming here from the farm you know so it was it was <laughs> but did you have a pool did I have it? We had a pool. Okay. Yeah. In Sherman Oaks, our first house had a pool <laughs> and I was happy about it. Um, but no, it, it was a very, very quick and, and uh, difficult transition from like, even as a child, like living slowly, we, we'd go out and play in, in like the forest and just like, you know, fuck around and, and run around like all day. And we'd hear like a dinner bell when it was time for us to like run back. No way. The, yeah. Straight out. Like my mom would stand outside, ring the bell sometimes like our dog we had a little corgi would come get us like from wherever we were um to like let you know you know yeah to let us know to like really big houses with like staff like working in the house that like lived there or whatever you know we had uh, huh. housekeepers and nannies and chefs and it was no way weird. yeah yeah it was very strange um i remember thinking like man, my parents are on their cell phone a lot, you know, like they're, they're really busy people. Yeah. But it was, a, it was a really interesting transition coming from there to LA. So, I mean, my childhood, it was kind of, you hear this in common with a lot of alcoholics or, or drug addicts, but I do also believe it's a part of the human condition, like feeling different right. than, than the people around you. So I'm not saying that's what makes me or doesn't make me an alcoholic or not but it was like something like you were missing a notable manual <laughs> something yeah it really <laughs> felt like I, I was uh playing catch up as soon as i landed in la so what was the what was the crowd that you hung out with like who were the types of kids i don't know i feel like you know when i was young it was just kind of whoever was down to I, oh yeah i was like a little skater kid i forgot about uh -huh. that so like the kids that skated i I hung out with those dudes, but we were kids, so it wasn't anything like edgy or cool. Like when I say we were skater kids, I mean like the skater kids of like Mulholland Estates, right, or right. something. It wasn't like anything punk rock or cool. We so, we definitely were all wearing like wrist guards and helmets, and it, you know, it was kind of <laughs> corny, but we had we had a good time. But in um later in. High school, I, I went to a really small private high school in the Valley. It's called Campbell Hall. And I think there were like 100 people in my class or something like that. So everybody knew everybody. Um, and the, at that point, I'd started playing music. Um, so I hung out quite a bit with like other kids that like maybe, you know, it's hard to say anyone's like a musician at that point in their life. Right. but. You know, one of my one of my buddies in high school, James. Uh, we played a lot, um, and then some of the dudes that I went to like middle school with. I switched schools from middle school going into high school, and um, so I kind of did like a little half and half. My like Beverly Hills crowd, where I know your sister, and mm -hmm. then um, you know my Campbell Hall crowd um, because those are the people I'd see all the time. So you do you feel like you had a pretty good childhood like upbringing for the most part 
Yeah, I think a part of of maturing is like realizing that your parents did the best they could with what they have. And as far as like opportunity, uh, resources, the ability to like fall on my face like time and time again, or like, you know, I want to work in a talent agency. No, just kidding. I want to play soccer. No, just kidding. I want to go to music school. Right. Like I, I was really afforded the opportunity to chase whatever like the year's dream was. Um, mm -hmm. But like at, at the same time, my father was relatively absent busy raising his second family mm -hmm. um and my mother is a really really like chronic alcoholic and um mm -hmm. i think when i was about 13 or 14 i started to notice that it was an issue i mean it wasn't an issue to me because i just didn't understand it at all right um i always thought she was kind of like charming and sweet when she was like <laughs> drunk but <laughs> Um, I knew the adults like were really upset whenever <laughs> they find her, you know, sneaking bottles or something. But, you know, when I was uh, 15 years old was where everything kind of started to like turn for the worse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, like in a new high school, everyone was super smart, super cool. It was like in the valley. So like, I don't know how 15 year olds had like good fashion sense, but they did. Like they all dressed really cool. Right. And listened to like, chill indie music that I knew <laughs> nothing about um and so again like kind of those feelings of like not really fitting in I mean I I kind of had my stuff music I played sports um you know I was in the chess club like it, it was all good <laughs> um but I started drinking on weekends like with my friends the first time I ever drank it was summer of eighth grade. And then I think by the time I was a freshman, it was definitely something I was like looking forward to doing on the weekends. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting, man. I mean, some people talk about being an alcoholic from the first drink they take. Some people talk about, you know, it, it developed slowly over a period of time. But, but I remember um, being conscious about how, I was explaining like my desire to get drunk like <laughs> during the weekend or whatever. I remember right. like Nick, my, one of my best friends, Nick, I mean, still like my best friend to this day. I would, um, I'd ask him like what our plans were this weekend. And I was like, should I ask him if we're going to like drink or do I, like, <laughs> wait till later in the week? Like, how do I be chill about this? Right. How do I be chill about this? And, and like in hindsight, like, who cares? Like, who knows? Mm -hmm. um, I, I have no idea how he would have reacted to something like that. But still, I was still like overly controlling about other people's perception of my alcohol and drug use, even when I first started. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think like I did have a decent childhood. I mean, there were traumatic experiences just with like having right. an alcoholic mother, but. You know what, though? I think it's an important point you're touching on that isn't commonly understood. And that is that addiction is its own problem. It's not just a downstream consequence of some other problem. You can have the perfect childhood, the perfect life, and still get very, very addicted. And yes, it's true that family history, co-occurring mental illness, childhood trauma, poverty, unemployment, even simple access, those all increase your risk for developing addiction. But you can also have none of those risk factors 
and still get really, really addicted. There doesn't have to be a reason behind addiction. Addiction can just be on its own. Sure. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not like, I work a lot with alcoholics on on the back end. So my Mm kind of thing is just like, okay, so it seems like everyone (laughs) in your life thinks you are an alcoholic. Yeah. You might need my help. Okay. So how did how did this progress, I guess, from drinking, getting excited about drinking on the weekends to to your lowest points um, to now? Walk me through sure. everything. Um, it's it's really hard to say which came first, but I was a pretty like, you know, I started drinking next. I started smoking a lot of weed and pretty quickly became like a stoner mm-hmm. in high school. I smoked weed every day. Um, the drinking kind of took a backseat to that. Um, mm-hmm. But at so let's say at fifteen, I'm smoking weed every day and drinking on the week on the weekends like consistently. Um, like it's it's always such an interesting story, but this is kind of how it all lined up. I had a, my first girlfriend when I was fifteen, like my first love lost mm-hmm. my virginity to this chick mm-hmm. and we broke up when I was 16 years old and it seemed like all at once you know I got extremely depressed I became violent um, I didn't care much to go to school or show up and to really anything um, so like all of those things by themselves are just like life factors and circumstance I wouldn't say I was drinking or smoking weed any more than usual, but it seemed like in hindsight to kind of keep me stuck in that place of having those things. And um, that was the first time I got sent to treatment. My mom was also like drinking pretty heavily at the time. Mm. Um, we, (laughs) We went to, I went to the psych ward and she went to rehab on the same night. Oh wow! Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so who was who was uh, making the decisions for you to go? We had a pretty cool psychiatrist pull up at the time. I hated this dude, but you know, put me in the psych ward. I, I, I mean, I did your mom contact him? I don't know. I don't know. I think, um, I think he was somebody that worked with like some of my stepdad's clients. Like he, he's like mm. a weird like. I mean, he's the <laughs> he man. showed up. He's like a Hollywood. <laughs> psychiatrist dude um and he pulled up to our house and i didn't know he was like doing an assessment with me but that's what was happening Mm. um and he decided that i was you know a danger to myself and others and that i needed to be locked up in the psych ward um which started my first and only car chase in my life um at 16 at 16 yeah (laughs) my uh uncle is a pretty like powerful successful dude he works in like private equity and and is like a forbes 500 dude like super crazy money and so he has like a security detail and ray who's the head of security i loved this guy still do i mean if i ever saw him him a big (laughs) hug but he chased me in my like shitty you know four-cylinder ford fusion with like this crazy (laughs) bends and we pulled into a dead end and I put my, it it was actually really dark. Like I remember just deciding kind of around that time that I was just going to kill myself. I was, um, 
you know, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think it was really a cry for help. I think I was like pretty decided that, that my life was too painful and uncomfortable. Cause granted, I mean, it had been like maybe a month between like this breakup, all my like mental illness stuff starting to like mount and swell. I, I got in a really bad like fight with a kid at school. I got me kicked out of school and I was just like, well, whatever. High school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my mom didn't know what to do. And I remember there was like one mm. conversation where she was like, like, can you, can you help? Like, are, do you think you're going to get better? And I was like, I don't know. So I think when that happened, it started this, like these action events, steps, yeah. but I, I was pretty resigned to just kind of like withering away to nothing. You know what I mean? I, I remember feeling like bummed that, my mom and stepdad still had gas in the tank to like step up and help me. Cause I, I was so incapable of like feeling anything at the time. So like to put myself in their shoes, especially at 16, that these are people that are trying to help me cause they love me. It was like impossible right. to understand. I was like, Oh, they're being controlling. Like mom was just being a bitch. She doesn't get it. Like, of course she's an alcoholic. So she's trying to like force her sobriety shit on me. Um, mm -hmm. So it was very difficult to comprehend the damage that I was doing just by like not be capable of perceiving or understanding or being anything close to like empathetic of like the way that I was like hurting other people, even at such a young age, mm -hmm. you know, my, my, my glory days are, are yet to come. <laughs> that was just like the beginning. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, what happens after the car chase? I go off to treatment center and I, I remember being really confused. I had no intention of staying there. Um, I was an absolute nightmare. I think I was there for 23 hours. I, maybe to this day, I'm still the shortest stay up at this treatment center. I remember like so matter of factly, just, I just assumed the doors were locked. You know what I mean? Cause I just came from the psych ward, you know what I mean? <laughs> or no, not yet. I just assumed the doors were locked. I guess I don't know why <laughs> I remember asking cause I didn't have shoes either. They took my shoes. They were like, you're a flight risk. I was like, for sure. I'm going to leave as soon as I can. Um, and I, uh, just, I asked one of the kids, I was like, so like, do we like go out ever? They're like, yeah, we got an AA meeting sometimes. I was like, huh? Okay. Like how do people get out of here? And this kid was like, I don't know. Sometimes people just like walk out the front door and start running. I was like, I didn't even know there was an option, you know? So that's what I did. I, I stole a kid's shoes. They were way too big for me. And I just started running down what I, I had no idea where I was at the time. Now I've been up to that treatment center since, and I know where it is <laughs> far from anywhere. Okay. Deep, like, you know, down like some windy road in Malibu. And, uh, I got arrested by the sheriff. Um, and then brought to the psych ward and then sent off to a treatment center in Utah called Provo Canyon School for the next about 13 months of my life. Okay. And I didn't really have like much like family trauma growing up, but this, the experience that I had at this treatment center was really dark and sad and scary. It, it's like since become very popular in like, news and and podcasts i mean paris hilton came out she went to like the women's one 
before I did. And it was a really dark, sketchy, scary place where, you know, in Utah, the staff are like legally able to put hands on you. And, and oh, the wow. first night I was there, I remember because of like my, the conditions of my arrival into that place, they put me in a, you call it investment where it was like 15 desks, like facing the wall. And you just sat there and you just had to be quiet all day and you just chilled. They had two books. They had the Bible. They had a biology book. Um, I'd taken the, <laughs> I'd taken biology freshman year. So I was like, I'm not reading that shit again. And I remember <laughs> I read the Bible front to back twice Wow! by the time they let me like back onto the units. Um, but at night you'd sleep on those little prison beds. And I remember the first night I was there, there was this kid named Morales and he like, I mean, I guess if, if somebody, you know, was, was acting like this level of disrespectful to me today, I'd just be like, Oh, this guy's like probably having a hard time, but I forgot what this kid said, but he's something to the tune of like, you guys need to respect us more. And I saw this like, Dude, I mean, these, this guy was like a six foot five Samoan dude, weighed no less than like 270 pounds, like grabbed the back of this dude's head and slam it into the wall and it broke his orbital bone. And like, I, I'd, I'd never, I'd been in a fist fight before, but I hadn't yet seen like violence right. at the level that I would come to see when I got to this place. Um, Did you know how long you were going to be here? Like, what was the conversation leading up? just sending you to Utah? Mm, no, I mean, they wouldn't. I, I remember landing there and being like, I just want to make it home for Coachella. And I was like, <laughs> okay, fine. If not Coachella, I just want to make it home for my birthday. I got there like March 17th or something. And my birthday is, you know, Coachella is like, you know, April, whatever. <laughs> and and my birthday is April 24th. I was like, come on, like I'm turning 17. Like I want to come home. I didn't know I'd be there long after my 17th birthday but did you have any expectation of what it would what it was going to be like you know honestly i i thought it was just going to be like a treatment center but my my oldest uh, adopted brother um has been to you know prison plenty of times he's like he's since got his life together but but i'd hear i mean when i was in college he called me from prison and we'd like check in and the violence that was going on there was like something I was familiar with mm-hmm. from like teen mm-hmm. treatment. Yeah. Wow. It was like there were animals. So like to be completely with the, with the wisdom I have today around like what type of person I understand my mother to be, what type of person I understand my stepdad to be, what type of person I understand the psychiatrist that like arranged all this shit. Um, Nobody knew. Mm. Nobody knew what to expect. Nobody knew what was going on there. I think they presented well and they had a good history or record of keeping very high acuity, violent teenagers safe till they turned 18. Mm. Um, But, I mean, it's a heartbreaking. Of the people that I was there with, um, I'm the only one that that's doing okay right. yeah like i i'm doing amazing but i mean i i'm in this like support group page um on facebook for this place and uh you know i've i have a guy doing life for murder i have a guy that got shot by police and the rest of them are strung out and on the streets if not out eaten dead 
So do they stay there till they turn 18? Most of them. And background of those people different from yours? Gangbangers and um, drug addicts mostly. There were the occasional like really funky, really weird case. Um, you know, stuff, stuff I don't care to discuss or disclose. But most of them were just like criminals and drug addicts, which, which I would soon become. But Foreign to your indie listening Coachella right, I vibing. I told these guys. <laughs> High when, school. When I got there, I told these guys I was from Beverly Hills, and they all laughed at me. Not because they thought it was stupid, because they thought I was joking. Right. I was the only t- person in that place, including the teachers, that was taking pre-calculus. Wow. I was taking pre-calculus as a junior, like, like most or some juniors do in, in Los Angeles. And I sat in a math class and the teacher and I were both reading out of this pre-calc book trying to figure it out. You know huh. what I mean? Um, so what type of an impact did that? Oh, man. I mean, honestly, I I don't think about it too much. I don't talk about it too much. It was um, even with, with all the substance abuse and, and like heroin addiction and like sleeping in doorways in Boston and like selling all my shit in Hollywood and hurting my mom and hurting whatever sweet, sweet, lovely girl I was dating at the time. Um, man, I mean, the darkest days might have been Provo Canyon School. And I was sober the whole time. Wow. <laughs> How long did you end up staying there? 13 months. 13 months, right? Mm-hmm. Wow. The How'd... last little bit, I went to like a, like a step-down thing. But I hadn't even like done cocaine yet at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. And I'm at a facility where like kids are fighting and bleeding every day, either with each other or the staff. Kids are getting raped either by each other or the staff. Were you afraid? Did terrified. you terrified? But like I was smart. And I don't like I don't peg myself for like the most intelligent person anymore. Like I don't usually, undersell usually when I'm in rooms with like therapists and doctors or my business partner like there are people in my life that are far more intelligent than I am and I can accept that because that's just like that's just the way it is but as like a teenage man from like remember when I was telling you in the beginning of my story like showing up to a place where I felt like everybody was kind of ahead of me yeah I showed up to this place and it felt like everybody was way behind me Mm -hmm. most of the staff were like very very simple Mormon people like the teachers, um, not like super highly educated. Um, the other staff members were like mostly like immigrants where English was their second language. And I, I really felt like I had a leg up on like everybody there. So while I was terrified, I'd like found enough use because my job was a tutor. I was a tutor when I was there after mm-hmm. like a certain amount of time, you get a job. And I was a tutor, which allowed me to check out to different units, which like allowed me to interact with like the different races that were there for me, like the me and the other four white kids were with like 120 Mexican dudes from LA mostly. And then the other two units were black kids from either Washington DC or Atlanta. Right. So I was pretty friendly with everybody because I understood if I did these kids homework, which like was addition and reading Mm -hmm. like i'm tutoring these kids like what we did in kindergarten like here are two counters and here are three so we put them together how many do we have like 
really, really simple stuff. So I, I was smart enough to like protect myself. I, I didn't like, I mean, any of these kids could have kicked my ass, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? But, you know, I was, I'd, I'd, I'd help them. Mm-hmm. Did you, do you feel like you made any strong friendships there? Or did you feel pretty alone? It's hard to say. No, no. I think there's a very unique incredible bond that like you 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 grow when experiencing like mm-hmm. such like high intensity such high fear um so much like threat of danger or violence or being put in harm's way with people that at the time we we were very very close um my mom tells a story of when she came to visit me and i went back to visit that place um, and all of the people were out in the yard and I walked up and she was like blown away. Cause my mother also from Nina, Wisconsin actress in New York, then over to like Beverly Hills and Hollywood, never seen like 16 year olds with like face tattoos right. and like covered in like gang tattoos. Um, and she'd like see these kids come up and were so happy to see me, you know? So the bond was, was established, but you know, a lot of these kids are, not around anymore um did you regret sending you there yeah i think like with what we know now she regrets it but i also understand and i've said this to her where i'm like i you know i know how or i can imagine how hopeless like you felt so when somebody offers a solution Mm -hmm. and they're like oh we deal with kids like this all the time it could be a very like safe feeling so i completely understand but of course you know what i mean i've I've never like told her in, in detail about right, like right, right, what right. it happens because I'm not <laughs> awful. You know? um, but yeah, so that was uh, quite the experience. I came back when I was 17 years old mm-hmm. um, and pretty quickly started like smoking weed and drinking again. Um, I had graduated high school before all my friends, so I had a whole lot of time to myself. So I started doing psychedelics a whole lot loved them still love them don't take them anymore but acid dmt psilocybin uh and how do you feel sorry to shift us off topic for a second here how do you feel about the cultural messaging and shift toward using a mind-altering substance like psilocybin or another psychedelic therapy to treat a range of mental health conditions as someone who's sober yeah speaking for myself yeah um I have had relapses that have started with psychedelics and ended with heroin. So mm-hmm. I understand in my case, it is uh, not something that I can like experiment with um, because it just ends, le- it, it ends up leading me back to stuff that kills me quickly, not slowly. Um, right. But, you know, I know it's become like kind of a popular thing. I, I know. You know, one of my friends, Anthony, went down to real hope to, hope to die junkie. You know what I mean? Goes down to Mexico, doesn't have again treatment, is sober for three months, and then dies of, of an overdose. Mm-hmm. So it's, I'm sure there's plenty of results one way or the other. However, as one whose like spirituality was originally founded, because I didn't grow up religious at all, um, my spirituality was originally founded through my psychedelic use. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've achieved today spiritually through 
practicing my own like connection with with my god has been far more profound than anything I experienced um, on acid or, or DMT even um, yeah. just without like the trippy visuals. Right. You know? So you get back from this treatment center mm-hmm. and you've graduated before all your other colleagues. You're back home. You're 17, 17 years old. And I moved in. My mom didn't, you know, we, we, we could admit that we weren't like super good for each other living right. together. She was still drinking. Mm. I decided to start drinking and smoking weed again. So that experience, did it have any impact on your desire? Yeah, I mean, I think I was sober out of fear for like a month or so. Okay. You know, I mean, I don't know. I started like, it reminded me of when I first started doing drugs where I would like hide it and like sneak because the fear of getting sent back, I was like, okay, all I need to do is make it till I'm 18. Since Mm. she can't send me back. Um. So I had to be kind of sneaky until I turned 18 about it, which like honestly didn't really like (laughs) reduce like the frequency or amounts that I was using. Um, But, you know, I I got an apartment in Venice Beach. I had very little responsibility. I was selling shoes at Urban Outfitters on the promenade. Um, My drug use is now starting to like mount and really take flight i'm doing xanax opiates and like with pills i kind of enjoyed like being able to kind of gauge how much control or not control of my body i'd have through like drinking Mm -hmm. um but i got introduced to it i guess through my friend eric um but i was kind of open to it i mean it wasn't like something that i was against At, at that point in my life um I really just thought I I was invincible. Like I could just do whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So if somebody had Xanax and was like, have you done it? I was like, no, but, but I'll try it. Like how much do you think I should take? And, but, but Xanax was never really something that I enjoyed or loved. It was, it, it had become like a utility drug to like help me with like detoxes or being dope sick or whatever, like later in my life. Yeah. Um, It was more like a tool. If, if there was ever an event on, Thursday that I was looking forward to, I'd take Xanax on Wednesday and just fast forward to Thursday because I'd usually black <laughs> out. Um, but my drinking really picked up that year too. I was not by myself, but I was drinking. I'd have my older brother go to the liquor store and get a bottle of Jack Daniels every morning when they opened just so we could have it for the day. I drink most of it. Um, <laughs> but I remember there's the way he tells the story now is like, Toby would go to this liquor store, buy Jack Daniels, and like the guys at the liquor store would like intervene on him. They'd be like, dude, are you okay? Like, what's going on? And he didn't understand what was going on. But looking back, like, he was like, no, man, like, this is for my little brother. Like, I'm 18 years old. Like, I can't buy alcohol. <laughs> and I'm like, an alcoholic. Um, what so about your younger brother? Where does he fit into this? Oof, Angus, geez. I mean, I think when my like mental health started to turn is where our relationship ended. Mm-hmm. Um, at fifteen, from fifteen to twenty-one, we had very little interaction. Mm-hmm. He was sick of my shit. He was kind of on top of his. Um, you know, graduated high school, taking APs, went to college, graduated college year early, stayed in New York, begins his acting career, and is like really. He, he just kind of, and also like a, an important factor to remember is it wasn't just me. It was also my mother. So when Angus left, he was gone. Mm-hmm. He was like, that was 
crazy. <laughs> um, so we we weren't really in contact or communicating at all during during my drug use. I mean, I remember when I went to rehab later when I was nineteen. He like wrote me a letter, and that was like the first. I remember reading it and just being like, I don't even fucking talk to this fool. What do I care what he thinks? Like, that's how dark okay. my mind well. got. We were so close as kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're 18. You're living in Venice. You're working at Urban Outfitters. I know you went to college. So walk me through how you how you got there. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, we're almost there. We're almost so I'm 18 there. <laughs> in Venice. And I can tell the pressure is kind of on me because I'm not really like, doing shit with from you life. or from someone else my parents your parents you okay. know like I, i'm i'm just like doing drugs and getting strung out my mom said when i moved into that apartment just come home for dinner every sunday so we could have dinner as a family i didn't go once the whole time um and didn't really care much to explain myself either like my selfishness and and my like me being so wrapped up in my own world it was crazy i remember my mom came by one day and brought my dog Roxy, like my childhood dog, to visit. And I was just like so inconvenienced and annoyed to see like my sweet mother and her dog. Mm-hmm. I was like, what are you doing here? You know what I mean? It was really sad. It was really sad. Um, and I, uh, I could feel the pressure. And there was like kind of like a window of opportunity where I felt like I could kind of see my life was like not going anywhere. And I kind of like agreed with that. I'd never say it out loud, but I was like, yeah, I mean, I don't want to be like stuck in some apartment that I will like never be able to afford. And like, I want something of my life too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I didn't tell anybody and I applied to music school paid like the 45 bucks or whatever that it was to send my application in. Um, and I remember I told my mom about this and she was so excited. She flew out with me to Boston to like do my audition. Cause she, I'm sure she was like, Oh, maybe my son's like finally getting his life together. Maybe he just needed a purpose. Maybe he just needed something to chase. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got in and I was blown away. Like I'm, I'm not the most gifted musician, but I, I can like work hard. So I mean, yes, you are. <laughs> I, I, I no, I mean compared just objectively compared to the people I was in college with. Okay, they were all like their prodigies from their like respective little towns and shit. Like, you know, I, I had other stuff going on. Um, that that like guitar wasn't really my focus. Like, it was kind of in a way like a fallback. I was like, okay, fuck. Like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe I can like try to go to music school and see if this is something that I want to like chase. Um, your parents are still supporting you financially at this point, Big right? time. Okay. Big, pretty much exclusively, you know what okay. I mean? Outside of any, like, weird, like, middleman drug deal shit that I could do. But I, like, didn't even really do that that much. Um, anytime I had drugs that I was supposed to give to somebody else, I'd do them. You know? <laughs> I was a bad drug <laughs> dealer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, no, I mean, so I got in and I remember I, – I should have known maybe at this point that, like – I was I was a, an alcoholic. I was like, I think I've been doing too many drugs and drinking too much. I should probably go detox before I go to college. And like, what fucking normal person <laughs> would ever be like, I just need like a little big boy timeout detox time. Um, and I got there and I remember they're like, we think you should stay for 30 days. Like you could probably use our help. I was like, how insulting. How what insulting. were you doing at that point? Like, what would you be detoxing from? Everything. I, I think my at the time, like my medical diagnosis was 
you know, poly substance dependency. Like mm. I was just addicted to so much shit. That, like <laughs> okay. definitely Zans, alcohol. I was taking psychedelics almost every day. Cocaine, whatever pills we could get our hands on was fair game. Smoking a ton of weed, but not yet heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, no fear really... of dying at this point? No. Okay. No. I um, I also didn't really, I didn't have anybody in my life that had died yet. Okay. Um, just a couple kids from treatment from when I was 16, but that was almost like expected. Were uh, you 18 at this point? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go to college at 19 after staying for 30 days. Um, they convinced me to stay for 30 days. I was like, okay, yeah, let's see what's going on here. And there was a, a part of me that enjoyed being sober. I definitely felt better. Mm-hmm. I definitely enjoyed the way that my family was acting around me. My girlfriend at the time was a big fan of me being sober. So mm-hmm. I like chased that for a while and I got to college and I was there for five months. And at the end of or like the beginning of finals, I remember I was like, all my buddies up in college knew I was sober. Um, I was like, Hey guys, I think I'm going to start like drinking again. And they don't know me, you know what right. I mean? So they were like, uh, okay, dude, like cool. You know, why are you being mm-hmm. weird? Um, and that first night, like I drank too much and like threw up on my friend and, uh, it started the first really awful, um, heroin run of, of my life. Um, I remember I had kind of like what felt like in a matter of days and, and granted, like before this time, I thought I was like doing the right thing. I like told my mom, I was going to start like getting fucked up again. I'm going to start drinking and smoking weed. And I'd, I'd be like, you know, I'm going to moderate my alcohol and marijuana use. Like I use like the terms I learned in rehab to try to sound like mm-hmm. chill. <laughs> um, and I remember she was visiting me for parents weekend when I sat down and told her that and she started weeping and I couldn't comprehend why it was such a big deal. Right. You had rationalized it to yourself. Oh yeah. I mean, my ability to do that was, was excellent at the age of 15 when I first started. So I, now I'd had three, four years of practice, you know, and uh, I told myself, I was like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get back to the hard stuff. There's no way. Like knowing what I know now about what, what happens when I do that shit, I'm just going to keep it to like booze and weed, which like, remember also kind of fucked up my life. Right. You know, but <laughs> I'm like, Oh, enough time has passed. Like I won't have that same reaction to it. I'm, I'm a mature 19 year old boy now, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, it was a short jump between like, drinking that night, throwing up on my friend to like, now I have like the acid dealer in Boston. My girlfriend in LA is sending me drugs out to Boston. And now I found a a dope dealer because I wanted to hook up with Erica so fucking bad that I went to her house when she asked if I partied. I was like, duh. And I did, you know what I mean? I did everything but H at the time. And uh, my, my, my drug use had been increasing the consequences had been increasing Mm. so like by the time it finally got to like you know whatever power in my life is like okay john like it's time to try heroin it didn't seem like a far jump okay it really didn't it was just like normal this is the next thing and and this chick seems pretty cool i mean like maybe it's not all that bad and i did it 
And that's exactly what I thought. I had such an amazing feeling wash over me. And I was like, man, I I really don't see how this is that bad. The next day I woke up and I like wasn't hungover. I like kind of felt like a little bit of an afterglow from the night before. And I was like, this is the big bad beast everyone's talking about. That was your first time ever doing any sort mm-hmm. of opiate, right? No, I'd done pills, but it, it's different. Like, or it felt different. I mean, I what pills? Morphine and oxy's when I was in Venice. My older brother got in a motorcycle accident, so we had quite a bit. Oh, okay. But I didn't even really like it that much. I'd take some when I was in in Venice, and I'd just like sleep all day. Mm-hmm. You know. And when you say take it, did you snort it? Sometimes, yeah, we'd snort it or eat it or whatever. You yeah. know what I mean? It wasn't. Uh, it didn't seem. So it didn't seem like that good of a time when we were doing it in Venice. But then when I got to Boston, it didn't seem like that big a deal. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is what, like, you know, Officer Shannon at fucking Hawthorne Middle School was telling me was going to, like, kill us if we ever did it. <laughs> I'm not dead. Right. You know what I mean? Right. I feel great. You know? um, but a lot of people were doing it. Nope. Nope. No. Or maybe, I mean, like. It's kind of like I've had this experience of like doing coke and like going out and then I feel like I could like see who else is doing coke and who else (laughs) is like on coke and whoever like, like it's like, I don't know, it's just weird thing. So like, you know, you don't know anyone who who does heroin until you do it. And then you know all the dudes in your class, all the chicks in your class that are are strung out. Um, So same experience there. and yeah, man, I mean, I, I had a girlfriend in college at the time who was so sweet and like loved me and she, this would be now the second woman in my very short life at this point, which would meet me one way and then drugs would make me a different way and they would just be like, what is wrong with this dude? Um, before I came back home to Los Angeles, like skipping over a bunch of the nightmare that boston was um it was 420 and i remember i decided like i'm gonna like hang out with my like normal college friends that like smoke weed on 420 um and something about the weed um it was just like the last drug in my symptom i'd already drank i was already on acid i was already on heroin probably had taken a little bit of xanax like i was already on a good vibration heading into that 420 party um, and I smoked weed, hit the ground, had a seizure, sat up, my nose started bleeding, and then I like projectile vomited all over this fucking place. And so, like, for a normal human being, that is a terrifying experience to witness. I've witnessed a couple seizures in sobriety, but like when I was the one that was going unconscious, I was like, you know, I spent the next 15 minutes convincing them not to call an ambulance because it wasn't a big deal. I have these all the time. And that's fucking dark. Yeah, this is in your 20s? I'm 19. 19. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I have one more run left. Did they I... call the... No. No. That was you... charming. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> um, um, wow. But granted, they also never saw me again. You know what I mean? They were like, all right, dude, you want to fucking die? Like, go. Go do it. At thing. that point, was your was your favorite... What was your favorite drug? Everything. Everything. Okay. Everything. I, I I um I think today my drug of choice, you know, I if I had to pick would be acid. But I'm very grateful to my experience with heroin and for for really bringing me to my knees. 
you know, it, it made my descent immediate. Mm. Um, I'd do heroin and would sell the shit in my apartment and do really awful, weird, like sex stuff for money and to, to pay for it where before I hadn't had an experience like that yet. Mm. I hadn't like turned to crime or, or whatever to support my addiction. I was more than happy just like manipulating my mother, but this like, the habit became so great that I couldn't afford to do that anymore. So I had to get more creative with how I was going to support it. Uh, meanwhile, my brother's in prison for cocaine and firearms. You know what I mean? Like he, he is just further down the line mm-hmm. in what I am following in his footsteps. Did you feel like you were following in his footsteps at the time? No. If you would have asked me, like him and I are way different, man. I, I would never be so stupid. I would never like get caught. I would never put other people's lives at risk. I'd never, whatever. Um, again, it was like that ability of like rationalizing my life. But I really believed, like it says um, in, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in this chapter called The Doctor's Opinion, a sober doctor who's not an, or no, a, a, a normal dude who's a doctor, not an AA, not whatever. He, he met the guy's. He says the alcoholic life seems the only normal one to them. And I was just like, yeah, dude. I mean, how I was living in hindsight, looking back, crazy. Mm -hmm. But I can remember being in that and just feeling like through a unfortunate series of circumstances, my life has ended up this way, so I just got to deal with it. There was no thought of sobriety even being an option Mm -hmm. because I'd like been sober before. Like I'd been to rehab, I'd been to treatment. Like I thought I understood what that was like. Um, so to fast forward a little bit, um, those friends called my mom and were like, yo, if you don't get your kid out of Boston, we think he's going to die. My mom called me. It just lined up perfectly where I was like out of money. I knew I was going to be dope sick the next day. She was like, what are the chances you get on a plane? I was like, get me the fuck out of here. Came home, went to treatment again, got another five months sober, met one of my best friends that I still have today. I married him and his wife. He now has eight years and, uh, we were down in Mexico. I got to officiate their wedding. Um, but there was one more relapse after that treatment center stay. My coming home from Boston, again, got another apartment, got into another music school. Um, and this is where like the subtlety of the disease came in, where I woke up that morning and I was really feeling being sober this time because I had just had direct evidence that, like, again, I start drinking, smoking weed, and all this other shit comes up and my life gets awful. And now I've had experience of like, and I'm dying. I'm having seizures. You know what I mean? And like I'm, I'm giving up this like dream-ish of like going to music school, becoming like a rock star or a professional musician or something like that. Um, and I come back and I wake up one morning. I'm about five months sober. And my friend Alec was coming over. He was like, you know, he, he does drugs. He did drugs. I knew he was going to have some. I knew he was going to offer it to me. And I knew I was going to say no. Mm-hmm. I, I was feeling so good about being sober. And he walked up, knocked on the door, and I'm even, like, giving myself a pep talk. I'm like, he's going to offer you shit? Just say no. Like, that's ever fucking worked before in my life. He opens the door. He's like, hey, what's up, John? Um, I have a cup of lean. Do you, you want to try some? And I was like, yeah. Like, no <laughs> thought. When just oh, five minutes before, You're I was rehearsing. like, there's no way I'm, I'm going to bed fucked up tonight. Um, and that started my last run. I, again, 
sold every last thing in my apartment. The only like possessions I had to my name was a couch that I pulled out of the alley into this apartment, uh, like a mattress that was on the floor. Um, my mom and, and uh, psychiatrist intervened on me again, and that started my last journey into treatment in 2014. October 11th was the day I got there. Um, and, and that was like the beginning of this recovery that I'm still currently in. Did you feel like you had a bottom before that last round? I feel like each round had like a respective bottom. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? When I was in high school, getting in a fight and getting kicked out of high school and then experiencing like one of the most traumatic moments in my life. I, I definitely, there were at each point of being sober and then going back to using, I could have pointed to some traumatic event that led me to get sober again and be like, oh, that was my bottom. Mm -hmm. Some worse than others. But out of all the like awful shit I did to other people, to myself, shit that I did to like sustain my drug use, and there's a lot of really grimy shit in there that like what felt like was my bottom this time was that I was sitting in the car with my mom, driving down to Orange County to go to rehab again. And I'm like coming in and out of consciousness, like nodding out high on opiates again, looking over at my mom who's just like, weeping again and i asked her you know where we were going and she said you're going to rehab again she said something to the tune of like honey i know if i don't help you you're gonna die but you know what dude like my mother's the sweetest woman she's like i'm afraid now that even in helping you you're still just gonna die and hearing that from my mother who had for the past five years like gone to pretty extreme lengths to get her son like just safe mm -hmm. to see her hopeless made me feel awfully hopeless so by the time mm. i got to this rehab this last time i was caught in a pretty weird situation where i was like i know if i like even so much as smoke a joint ultimately my life is going to get so bad i will just rather not live it like a, a death of an overdose would have been so welcomed at like my lowest points in my using. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I couldn't do that, but I also didn't think sobriety was an option. So I was pretty fucked. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That is, a, that is a tricky, tricky spot to be in a pretty uncomfortable fork in the road that, you know, other people that I've met in AA, you know, that they say something to the tune of, uh, you know, go on to, the die a slow alcoholic death like going on to the bitter end trying to blot out the hopelessness of our situation as best as we could or accept spiritual help we're not easy alternatives to face and really like mm -hmm. god there's such an easy answer there but like as stated when we're in that when we're in that spot it's like i can't sit down with somebody who's like you know has just been homeless for three months and be like no, dude, if you just work 12 steps, your life's going to be great. And then right. just believe me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, was a, it was a difficult, difficult spot to be. And I think that was the first time that maybe it wasn't my bottom as far as like consequence on paper. But it was surely the most hopeless I'd ever felt because I'd just been running that same circuit over and over bring everyone's hopes up, get the apartment, get back into school, like seem to be doing well, tell everybody I love sobriety and mean it. 
tell everybody I want to be sober and mean it and fuck it all up again and then like bring it even to like a lower lower spot of hurting the people around me myself and all the consequences that come with that if it weren't for the intervention of your mom where do you think you would be now would you have chosen that for yourself no I don't think I could have done it myself I I needed the help of other people I, I like at the time I was really pissed and I felt betrayed like as usual and my mom would like step in and like you know see her son like 30 pounds underweight and like in awful shape and me like making her out to be the bitch you know right um but if if I didn't have people around me that were willing to do that I'd, I'd just be dead or homeless at best you know what I mean a homeless junkie at best it's incredible what you've had to overcome in your life and the discipline required every single day for you to stay in recovery. And it's so easy to imagine that we're different from, as you put it, the homeless junkie and to look only at the surface level. And yet the addiction, the dynamic is the same. Do you feel like there's something that separates you from that fate? Yeah, opportunity. I, I like. There's a, a statistic that SAMHSA Release that 5% of people that want treatment get it. Yeah. Not like the 5% of people that need it, the 5% that want it. Right. Which is crazy. So I had a family that was like, I was allowed to go to rehab, what, five times, four times up until this point? You know what I mean? And, and most people don't get one. Most, like, I, I say this to a lot of the boys that I work with is like, if you've made it to a bed in one of my sober livings, me and my business partner, Connor, one of our sober livings, if you've made it to one of our sober livings, you have climbed over dozens of bodies to get in there. So, yeah, that, that's the only difference. It should have been me. If life was fair, I'd be dead. Thank God it's not. You know what I mean? Thank God, like, guys like me get second and third and fourth chances. I mean, shitty things happen to good people and bad things. Um, I mean, good things happen to bad people. But if, like the fact that I'm, and I believe this to my core, like the fact that I'm sitting here doing a podcast with like, you know, my best friend's little sister that also like kicked on my couch that had a very terminal and fatal chronic disease. Um, the fact that I get to sit here and do this podcast with you is is nothing short of evidence of a remarkable miracle that has like occurred in my life and i've been lucky enough to see such a miracle in myself my mother my older brother my little brother um your sister but like at the same time with with all of those successes i mean your sister kicking on my couch was the result of my best friend dying who she was also friends with right um so again, that is that is the body she had to climb over to get in here. Right, um, right. I got a year, just a little short story. I got a year sober and I met the gentleman that took me to the first meeting I ever went to in my life. He was at the meeting where I was taking a cake. I was like, oh, Ronnie, dude, I, I got a year sober tonight. Like, how you doing, man? And he was like, I'm not so good. My dad died today. And I was like, oh, damn, what happened? He was like, he died of an overdose. And he, this is a, this guy's been sober like 15 years or at the time had like 15 years, something wild. Um, and I was like, Oh shit, Ronnie, I'm so sorry. Like I feel, I, I kind of feel like weird now. Like I'm here like celebrating a year and your, your dad's like passed. I'm so sorry. 
And he, that's what a king. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he was like, you know what, man, if he had to go, so you and the people you will help get to stay, it's worth it to me. Wild. Well, that's, that's something 15 years of sobriety yeah, insight will get you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, that's a, that's a very spiritual understanding right. of, uh, what we as humans can perceive as being good or bad rather than like clearly a man who has some kind of deeper connection and purpose to like a spiritual plan that's laid out for all of us where he could see like live in the moment like that day if my dad had to die so i could stand here and tell this like you know 21 year old kid that i'm proud of him for getting a year sober and not to like take this moment of like to be sad with me over my dad but to be so happy and joyous about this miracle so you're now how many years sober uh eight and a half eight and a half half. i'll have nine years sober if i don't fuck it up from now till october 12th yeah (laughs) and um do you feel like there was a moment for you in recovery where you chose it for yourself because initially right yeah i think so I think there was, I don't think I was like present for it happening, but when Eric died, uh, my best friend, I was 18 months sober. Um, and that was the closest I ever got to relapsing. I remember my older brother was like, John, I wish you could just smoke weed with us. And I was like, fine. Like, then give me the weed pen. Like I was down. I would have relapsed that day if he would have handed it to me. Mm -hmm. And he was like, dude, how many times have we been through this? And I was like kind of embarrassed. So I was like, oh, geez, like that was awkward. Like I'm afraid. When did you start to rebuild that relationship, by the way? Well, that's my older brother. My little brother didn't Uh start talking to me until I had about a year sober. We didn't really. And like it took a long time for us to get as close as we were when we were kids because like he lived in New York and I lived in L.A., Mm -hmm. you know. So it wasn't until – probably my mother in sobriety, I was like three or four years sober and she got a DUI um, and hit somebody and had to do some time over it. And so we had an opportunity to like speak with each other a lot because at this point my mom had divorced my stepdad and um, it was up to us to like help her out. Um, So we kind of bonded through that experience again and became very close. So what does your life look like today? Um, oh, today my life is, is fucking, it's beautiful, man. But it's not, a, it's not beautiful in the ways that if you would have asked me when I was 16 and what you know, my wildest hopes and dreams were, I would have preferred to be a richer man. I would have preferred to probably be married and like have a kid maybe kind of on the way. Um, I thought my life was going to look one way. Um, but then years of alcoholism and drug addiction will uh, um, kind of change your perspective on the really simple things that you start to have. So like today, the greatest joys in my life that I hold are the relationships that I have now got to develop because I stopped getting fucked up and decided to work 12 steps and have a spiritual experience and you know, commit as much as I can to destroying the John that was and replacing that with like spiritual principles and and try to get as close to God as possible. Um, 
and uh, you know, I don't know, just a, it seems so simple. Today I was on my way to go, like I'm not a gun guy, but I was going to like go shoot, um, shoot guns with a couple dudes that I really look up to. One's name is Blitch, he's like a spiritual counselor. Um, the other guy's name is Dan, he runs another sub living and I love these guys. And I'm, I'm riding out there um, on, you know, my motorcycle, which I, I would love to ride motorcycles, but I didn't think I was going to live long enough to get one. I have, I have two now. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I'm, I'm riding out to like San Bernardino and my phone flies out of my pocket. Somewhere on the highway, it's destroyed. And something like that could have spent me, sent me into like, a spiral man like i'd get high if i stubbed my toe i get high if i found a dollar on the street so if there was any kind of like happiness or joy i was feeling let's celebrate if there was any kind of like pain or suffering i was feeling i'd use it to cope um i didn't even freak out like a little bit i mean granted like the 500 dollar like surprise bill out of nowhere is like not in the slightest appreciated <laughs> however um you know, I just knew, I like went to the AT&T, like all deep in the valley and got my phone figured out and I got this like cool purple iPhone and I didn't freak out. But one of the other beautiful things was like, and it's, it's kind of like gnarly, but I ride bikes. So if, if I ever like don't pick up my phone, a lot of people assume like I got in an accident and died. And uh, I get my phone turned back on and I have like five missed calls from the two guys I was supposed to meet at the shooting range my business partner, one of my employees, and they were all so relieved to hear that I was still alive. And I promise you, there was a point in my life that if I were to have died, if I was to have died, though tragic and sad and heartbreaking to the people in my life, it would have been a relief. Because it would have been over. The chaos that I was like consuming my family with would have been over. The chaos um, and pain that I was inflicting on like anywhere from strangers on the streets to girls that I was in love with that were in love with me to my family that cared very deeply about me. And now it's like, I used to walk into rooms and like it would get quiet because people were not excited that I was there because they didn't really know what to expect. Maybe I was going to have a seizure, maybe I'd get in a fight with somebody. Mm. People were usually not very happy to see me when I would arrive somewhere. Now I walk into rooms and I try to really pay attention because this is the simple shit that like often goes overlooked for like normal regular humans that haven't yet or hopefully don't have to like experience the threat of losing one's own life where I walk into rooms now and people are very happy to see me. I don't feel like I have enough time for all the people that I even care about. Mm -hmm. And that's a fucking blessing. Yeah. That's so amazing. I get to walk into places and, and even the problems I have today. If I don't feel like I'm being effective at work or me and my business partner are being catty with each other or, you know, breaking up with, with a woman that I love deeply or any of these types of things that are extremely painful for any kind of person, if I get caught complaining enough to, to uh, my sponsor, he says something and it always snaps me right back into place. He goes, you know what, John? It's really not bad for a dead guy. Anything I have today is borrowed. Because really, 
at 20 years old when I'm like dropping out and having seizures, having sold all my shit, having no intention of trying to get sober again because I know it's not gonna work. Death was, I, I really believe I didn't have another two weeks of living, seriously. So that even the problems I have today are gifts. There's some kind of like purpose through the hardship as being like some kind of pathway to peace and deeper understanding of myself, how I can like interact with situations, people, conflict, consequence with a little more grace, trying to bring a little more love into this life, trying to be a little more kind to people who don't get treated kindly enough. You know what I mean? Anything that I have today from losing my phone and not freaking out, having people that would be devastated if of course like something terrible happened or being able to walk into a room anywhere from like my closest friends to my acquaintances and even now today like I, I, I have a pretty uh, you know I'm, I'm not trying to toot my own horn but in the circles that I run with either with work or um, just sobriety in general it is usually that I meet people after they have heard something about me, mm -hmm. right? And today, like, it's mostly good. Mm -hmm. When I meet people, they're like, oh, like, John helped my sister get sober. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, John, uh, you know, picked up my, my older brother from rehab and, like, drove him, you know, whatever. Like, um, you know, I run into strangers that are like, oh, that's you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it's good stuff. In, in the past, I'm sure it was the same, but, you know, I probably owed some people money or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, it wasn't a good look. Um, so that's what my life looks like today. I, I have been situated, luckily enough, to be able to guide people that are new in recovery or have had negative experiences with their own recovery and to try to have an open mind and a new experience with those kinds of things. Um, and I'm really good at it. So what's, what's wrap with one piece of advice that you'd give to someone who's either thinking about sobriety, struggling maybe, or, or very early on in their recovery? Call me. I, I, I think uh, the trap that I fell into so often was that I wasn't understood. The feelings that I was feeling, like if I felt like relapsing or that the sobriety shit was bullshit or... Terminal uniqueness. For sure. That people didn't understand me. But the people I was talking to was like my family, which was loaded. Doctors and therapists, which I didn't believe had an understanding of what I had. Because clearly not. Like I, these people would give me like pretty like strange pieces of advice that just didn't make sense to me. Like, why don't you just try to moderate? Why don't you just slow down? Don't you love your family enough to, to, to do what they're asking of you? Things that like any normal human being would be like, oh my God, if my you know, mother asked me to slow down, maybe I would. And I'm just like, that's, that's, that's insane. Um, find another person that thinks and, and, and drinks and gets fucked up like you and feels like you do, that has recovered that has had an experience outside of the one that we, when we're using, feel so trapped inside. But this, the type of shit that I do with my boys, that I do with my sponsees, that I do with you know my friends in the program, none of this shit is new. Like, I'm not coming up with anything new. This is something that's been going on since 1939. And help with far more low-bottom alcoholics and drug addicts than myself, you know? 
all we're doing is just passing along the same shit that's been getting done since then to people. Sometimes there's a little more nuance nowadays because of the fatality that is like very possible with the like, you know, I'm, I'm 20 years old and I was a full-blown drug addict, you know what I mean? I think if I had access to, if I could buy alcohol, like you were saying, maybe I would have just been satisfied and I could have drank till I was 35. But mm -hmm. I would have died if, if I kept going. Um, right. So if someone, if someone does want to connect with you, what's, how can they find you? What's, no, no, no. All right, I guess my email. Ooh, what's your email? <laughs> J-C-O-B-R-I-E-N. Nine four at gmail.com. Awesome. We did it. Yay. Yay. <laughs>